The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the founder and producer for the podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a thumbs up or give us a five-star rating. That way Google finds us and when people go to search for podcasts about addiction, they'll find us. And we like to think that our messages are pretty supportive for those suffering from addiction or those with loved ones suffering from addiction. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our channel. If you ring the bell, you'll get notified whenever we put up a new episode and also give us a thumbs up on our episodes there. Once again, it just helps people find us. Google will point to us when they search. Today's episode is episode number 263. And today we're going to be interviewing a gentleman named Joshua Villarreal. Joshua was a careered musician. He was very successful in many capacities. He once owned a recording studio with Gordon Raphael, who was the producer of The Strokes and Regina Spector. And then he got his own record deal. He worked on his debut album with Anthony Braun Perry and Scott Montoya, both from the band The Growlers. He was well on his way. He had met and worked with many successful musicians and others in the entertainment business. But there was one thing that he did not take into account, and that was his addiction to heroin. And heroin led him down the path of so many others to major destruction in his life. So let's talk to Josh and find out not only about how this came about, but how he got clean and sober, what his point of no return was. Josh Villarreal, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story today. Um, We know that when people such as yourself share their stories, that it um, resonates with people. And so really appreciate you taking the time because I know you're at work. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Joni and Steve. Absolutely. So tell me, give me your background. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? How did you first get introduced to drugs? Um, So I'm from California. I'm from Los Angeles originally. Um, My mom moved out there when she was uh, 18 to uh, chase the big movie dream and wound up pregnant twice over, which is pretty common over there. Um, And my father left when I think I was about three. So didn't really have a male figure around. My mom worked a lot and also drank a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, my grandfather on her side uh, was also an alcoholic. Um, and then my grandfather on my dad's side, my, my dad's dad, he died of cirrhosis just a couple of years ago. Um, and so uh yeah alcoholism and addiction is pretty prevalent in my family um but yeah and then in growing up in los angeles it's so <clears throat> i guess widely accepted and so the norm there and uh it's it's also socially acceptable for young people to uh, like really young people <laughs> to get into uh, drugs and alcohol um you know pretty early on and so like yeah, I did without a lot of guidance and direction with all those, you know, environmental and external factors and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I just I was kind of doomed from the start. <laughs> Understood. But how old were you when you started either drinking or did you do drinking <clears throat> first or drugs first? Um, I, I started drinking first. Um, I was about 
nine, the first time I, uh, well, I, I started smoking cigarettes and pot when I was about nine, and then I started drinking when I was 11, and yeah, uh, the first time I got drunk, I was 11, and I remember I was so hungover the next day, I thought I'd never do it again, but not too long after that, I did Famous it again. last words, yeah. Yeah, again and again, so... Nine years old. Okay, that makes me just a little bit scary. My oldest granddaughter is turning nine on Saturday, so just oh, makes me a little bit scary, but she's, <laughs> yep, I know she's not going to go that route just because I know what kind of environment she's in, but it makes me kind of sad that you were exposed to it at that young an age, you know? Anyway, so, okay, so obviously you didn't start with heroin, so talk to us about how it progressed, what it was like going to school. I'm assuming you did a lot of this while you were in school as well. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, so, yeah, when I was uh, younger, I, I um, was kind of an outcast. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was uh, uh, not generally, typically somebody you would call cool uh, when I was younger. I'm still probably not somebody you know, you'd call cool, but, um, yeah, when I was younger, I didn't have a, a lot of friends at all. Um, and that was kind of hard for me. Um, you know, I wanted attention and I, I liked attention. Um, but it was sort of awkward. I was overweight, um, kind of greasy. I had acne You know, I just, I didn't have a lot of friends. So the few friends I did have were sort of like me, they were <laughs> outcasts, uh, social misfits and they drank and did drugs. And so that's kind of how we, you know, sort of, kept company you know we had common interest in music and drugs and so um i also skateboarded um and a lot of my friends were skateboarders and it was the same thing and um <clears throat> a lot of them got injured and were getting prescribed painkillers because at that time you know everybody was getting painkillers for you know whatever and so that's kind of how it's that started um so how old how old were you then uh, I was 12 when I when I when I took Vicodin for the first time, and I'll never forget that. I was, yeah. <laughs> You're so young. Yeah. You were so young. Sorry, I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. It hurts. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I'm, not, I'm a father. My son just turned 12. So, and I think about how he's 12. Yeah, he's autistic though. Fortunately, a lot of people think that like, um, you know, with he's he's got type one diabetes and he has autism. Um, he's he's pretty high functioning, but the one good like really great thing about that for me. Um, above all else is that uh yeah he doesn't like he has no interest in you know those types of things which i think is awesome you know yeah you know? yeah so. okay so you're 12 years old took vicodin mm -hmm. what was that like um <clears throat> i get like the the first time i took vicodin it was I, I always tell people it felt like god wrapped his entire body around me and melted into me like i just had this warm feeling, the sensation that everything was going to be okay. Like even things that were never going to be okay, they'd be okay sort of thing. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. Warm and fuzzy for sure. And then, so what happened then? You're in, you were in junior high, right? Or still in elementary yeah. junior high? No, okay. yeah. I was in, I was in sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade. Okay. And, um, I didn't, I, you know, that it wasn't really sort of a, um, I didn't have easy access to them quite yet. The I had, it, it took a little while. I had a friend DJ like two years later. Um, he was actually a sponsored skateboarder. So he was, you know, he was, he skateboarded, you know, basically like semi-professionally pretty uh, early on um, in his life. Um, but he was getting injured a lot too. And again, like this is before 
you know, everything that's going on now is going on. So he was getting oxycodone, oxycodone, you know, hydrocodone, whatever. And, uh, you know, he started sharing them. So when I was 14, my addiction took off, you know, in a really big way. Um, and I can remember uh, even he, like, it got to a point where it, he he expressed concern. He was, you know, he was giving me the pills, but he was like, you're starting to <laughs> scare me a little bit and irritate me because I would, you know, do ridiculous things like, I'm not too ridiculous, but I would just beg. I'd be like, come on, I'll, you know, I'll give you $30 for one, you know, whatever. And it was just, it got bad pretty quick. Um, Where so, were you getting the money? Um, all different ways. Um, I worked at the skate park that he was sponsored at. Okay. So, and then I did, um, the, the owner was um, like a contractor and roofer um, during the, like his, that was his day job. You know, he owned a skate park as an investment. Um, but yeah, I worked for him too under the table. So he would pay me cash every day. So sort of easy access. Um, the other thing was DJ's uh, girlfriend, her mom had like something going on with her back, like a herniated disc. So she had um, quite a bit of uh, large quantities of uh, painkillers as well. And he would get them from her and, you know, share them with me. And that's how, yeah, we fed our addiction for a little while too. Understood. You were in high school now. Yeah. Yeah. 14. So I was a freshman. Okay. <clears throat> did you, did you graduate high school? I did. I graduated early, three years early. Okay. Yeah. So you must've done okay academically, even though you were doing drugs. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, uh, I re my memory is really good. I retain things pretty, you know, like I have a really great memory. Remember like things that I see or numbers, like just, you know, so, um, schoolwork was not a problem <laughs> getting along with teachers and, you know, like social situations, that was kind of where things were difficult. So, um, I started getting kicked out of school when I was a freshman. Uh, and by the time I was in 10th grade, I think I'd been thrown out of like four or five schools. So what my mom did was she pulled me out one day and she had somehow managed to get it set up where, um, rather than you know, go through school for the next three years. Um, she, she, she spoke to the, somebody at the board of education for the state and someone else. And, uh, what I basically had to do was take every single test, um, that, you know, they were essentially going to give to me and do a series of things. Um, and when I was done, I had to take, um, like a final test type of type of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I got to graduate and get my diploma. It wasn't a GED, it was a diploma. Um, the, the reason why I graduated early was because I wanted to get it done and out of the way. I wanted to spend more time playing music and skateboarding and hanging out with friends. And they sort of, you know, um, let me know early on, like, yeah, this is at your own pace. So if you like get this done tomorrow, you can graduate tomorrow. Obviously, you know, it took me about six months, but yeah, by the time I was 15, I was completely graduated with my diploma. Way too much time on my hands. Wow. And you were already into music, right? Yes. Yeah. P playing your own music. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from there, tell me what happened after that. You're done so, with school. You're 15 years old. I was 15. I spent a lot of time uh, practicing guitar and uh, piano. And, um, you know, my mom didn't really have a lot of money at that time. Um, so like Christmas for us came on during tax season. We wouldn't, we, we didn't get a Christmas, you know, Christmas day. We'd have to wait till like January, February, March, which is cool. 
you know, because um, she would always give us this one really big, nice present for <laughs> being patient. And so what I did for a long time was I would ask for an instrument every year or something to go with an instrument. And yeah, that's how I spent my time um, in a positive way. The downside was that, yeah, with all that free time and my mom at work, I had, you know, a lot of time to get into trouble and, and you know, get up to no good. So started drinking a lot more when I was 15. Um, and uh, yeah, I started doing, that was when I first started doing cocaine as well. By the time I was 16, I think I'd lost like, I went from being 220 pounds to 145 pounds. Oh my God. And yeah. <laughs> How did you get introduced to cocaine? Where did that come about? I was just at a party one night and, um, you know, I, before that, I was just kind of, yeah, I, I, I didn't even consider taking painkillers as such a bad thing because it was for pain and for injuries. And, you know, my friends and I were always getting hurt. And, yeah, I didn't have a doctor prescribing them to me, but, you know. But it was prescribed, mind, therefore it's got to be, <laughs> right. yeah. I so. rationalized it, yeah. So, but, yeah, we're at a party and someone had some and, um, I don't know, I, was, I just got curious. And, you know, a couple of my friends were like, no way, that's crazy. Why would we ever do that? And I was like, well, I don't know. It looks kind of fun, you know, so. I did it and boy, was it fun, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that's, so then that started. And, um, that was the first time in my life, uh, that I, I probably not only developed a pretty serious problem, but, um, it became so prevalent that like I had my first bout of isolation and friends and, you know, people not wanting to talk to me anymore, or speak to me. Cause I became kind of weird and, you know, because cocaine makes you really, you know, erratic and sort of, I guess, flighty, paranoid especially if you've been up too, for, I think, yeah, yeah. paranoid, paranoid, yeah. So yeah, I, I got to like this place where my best friends didn't want to hang out with me anymore. Um, I was still playing music, um, but I got kicked out of like the first band I was ever in, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it's kind of a mess. So um, I stopped probably. I think the last straw came when um, I got really drunk one night and I spent like a ridiculous amount of money to get to my Coke dealer because I was in another city, like at a party and, you know, lost my bag. And so I paid somebody like a hundred dollars to drive me 30 minutes just to go pick up another bag and like, spend an entire paycheck just to get like a $40 bag, which lasted like 10 minutes. And uh, yeah, I woke up the next day and was like, what am I doing? So at that time, I was able to quit with um, without, you know, uh, any sort of a program, as it were. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, it, was an, <laughs> it was an interesting and intense uh, period because, yeah, it gave me a little bit of firsthand experience with what addiction sort of does, not only with you, but with your, you know, close-knit people. Right, right. Yeah, I think I read in your uh, bio that you sent that you were you were able to stop several times, but you just didn't mm -hmm. stay clean and sober. You would start mm -hmm. using again. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've stopped cocaine. Where mm -hmm. did you go then? Um, so I kept drinking and I kept abusing um, painkillers. And then... Um, it was, let me see, I guess it was, it's years later, like, I ended up, um, 
it, I, I climbed, it progressed, and, and the painkillers were getting stronger, and I was finding new connections, and um, people were, um, you know, introducing me to other people that had, you know, better stuff, and I was uh, spending the money and all that sort of thing, but it was it was sort of like, I don't know, it, it, it took long enough that I was able to, I guess, not become a full-fledged addict and still focus on, like, music and, and some of the projects I worked on, and I was able to sort of balance things out. Um, and I remember when I, the first time I did morphine, it was a pill, it was morphine sulfate. Um, I had, uh, I don't know, like it was, that was like a whole nother level for me. And, um, the guy who was, um, selling them to me, he warned me, he was like, yeah, this stuff will take hold of you. So just be careful. Um, and then, you know, his prescription stopped and, and he, you know, he couldn't get them anymore. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of had to quit at that, at that time because, you know, he couldn't get them anymore. And then, uh, everything else wasn't doing it for me anymore. You know, Vicodin wasn't doing it for me anymore. You know, I could take 10 at that, at that time and I barely feel anything. So wow. I sort of stopped and I kept drinking and then I, I started doing Coke again. And, um, that started to spiral a little bit out of control again. And, you know, I'd always kind of go and, and like, do uh, different drugs for for long periods of time and you know switch i was like trade one addiction for another but at that point um, you hadn't done heroin right no yeah did you have did you have this idea that i've heard before that oh heroin is something i will never do that's something i don't want to go there did you have that viewpoint or not really you know growing growing up i when i was really little probably i probably said that but i think always when i got when i got when I was nine, I got my first guitar and I started reading about, you know, my heroes like Jimmy Page and Slash and, you know, all these guys that were heroin addicts that were guitar players. And I remember thinking pretty early on um, at a young age, like, I want to do anything and everything that these guys did uh, from how they drink their tea to how they eat their hamburgers to, you know, whatever drug. I want to do everything so I can be as good as they are at guitar. And so I remember being really young going, eventually I'm going to do hard drugs. Like there's no question about it because one of the um, common, I think, I don't think it's intentional, but a big mistake musicians make is they glorify, you know, the high in at the wrong, the wrong time. You know what I mean? I think that like people always say my, 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 my worst day sober is bet was better than my uh, best day high. And I just, I don't agree with that. I, mean, I had a lot of good times when I was getting high. Um, I had a lot of fun, but the problem is, is I, you know, as, as a real true addict, I, I just, I couldn't, I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, stop. I, and I couldn't control, you know, my behavior. And so, um, yeah, I guess like when I talk about it now, when people ask me, I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, there were times that were absolutely fun and changed my perception and, and helped inspire different things. But I would, I don't recommend anybody ever even, you know, consider going down that road because it's, you become such a cliche and I don't, I've never met anybody who just tried heroin and, you know, and, and didn't and like it and stopped. It. Yeah. I don't think we've yeah. talked to anybody either like that. Okay, but I kind of got you ahead of it a little bit because you weren't doing heroin. Um, like, okay, so you're done with high school. Obviously, you didn't do any college, right? Because you were doing music. I did. I did some college. Oh, you um, did college. Okay. Late la- later on, yeah, in okay. my early twenties. Um, but yeah, I took some time to um, just kind of focus on music. Yeah. 
okay. and write and, 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 you know, do different things. I started traveling quite a bit. And, um, yeah, I, um, I was hanging out with an older crowd too, um, because I had graduated. So, um, and I was able to get a job like, um, at a, at a regular place. I wasn't working under the table. Right. Um, because the law is like, once you're done with school, you can, you know, work as much as you want. Um, provided that your parents are okay with it or, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, so I was hanging out with an older crowd. A lot of them were going to bars and partying and, and stuff like that. There were, you know, a lot of them were in college. Um, so yeah, it like cocaine and alcohol kind of would I'd go back and forth. And, um, every once in a while, I'd find somebody who had pain pills and, you know, just be like one time thing. But um, I guess around the time I was 17, uh, I heard this band, The Strokes, for the first time. And as much as um, I love music, I hadn't really, I was kind of nervous about, you know, considering music as a career because it's such a, it's really hard to get into. Um, and even if you do get into it, like, it's, it's, it's even harder to make a good living at it for a long period of time and not become disenchanted or, you know, jaded by it. And there was just so many things I considered, but uh, the strokes were like the first modern band that made me want to do music professionally. So um, yeah, 17, I kind of uh, took a step back from, you know, drinking so much and doing drugs all the time and started to focus more seriously on not just being good at music, because at that time I was really good at music, but I wanted to be, you know, focused on making music my career. So, yeah, once again, I was able to to put it down for a little while. But um, then and things you, started to go. And you started to be successful. Yeah, I did. Yeah, absolutely. It said, um, in, your, it said in your bio you were working with Gordon, Gordon Raphael. Raphael. Yeah, yeah. Producer, and then strokes. And then you had a debut album starting off with a couple of good musicians. So yeah. I was, happened? yeah, I was basically like, I, yeah, I worked really hard and I, I did all through, through trial and error, learned how to do all these crazy, like I, my mom always told me, you know, if you're going to do something, um, just be the best at it. Not the best for everybody else, but the best that you yourself can possibly be do it with integrity and, right. you know, make sure you enjoy it. So I would come up with all these, unique and novel ways to get people to listen to my music or to, you know, network with me. So basically what I did was I, I scan, I called the strokes management office and I scammed them into giving me their manager's uh, email and then Gordon's email, the producer, and just basically told them, look, you know, I'm just a fan, but I have some questions about audio. And one thing led to another, And like after talking to him for like two years, and pushing him, I got him to, uh, yeah, open a studio with me, which was pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was a great time. Um, and that's actually, it's interesting. That was when Gordon was sober. I think at the time he had been sober for seven years and he went through uh, treatment and yeah. Um, and I wasn't uh, up until we had built the studio, I wasn't really yet partying. I was always focused on what I was doing in, in my career. So, um, anyway, once he we we got the studio set up though and and you know people that i also owned a clothing store with um a person i was in the relation a relationship with at the time my son's mother actually and so we would have parties there and fashion shows and like gordon would go and dj there and everybody would want to meet him so it got to be kind of a party hangout place 
and of course, slowly but surely, I started to dip my toes and then, you know, finally jump back in. And uh, the uh, kind of the breaking point was we had the studio for quite a while. And then I got arrested for public intoxication, uh, assault on a police officer and destruction of property. And, you know, in order to kind of keep his name clean, um, which I understood, uh, Gordon just sort of backed off from the project, dropped out of it you know, kind of gave me the studio and, you know, I wasn't really in a place where I could take care of it by myself. So I just, you know, in the end, I just let it go. But yeah, I guess. Okay. Did, did your girlfriend do drugs as well? She did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did that, um, did that contribute to um, the autism that your son has? Do you know? You know, I, I can't say definitively, but I'm pretty sure because Mm -hmm. I actually quit, I quit drinking and doing drugs while she was pregnant just to support her. But I, I caught her a couple of times using and drinking while I was, you know, like I get home early from work and, and find her passed out like with wine, you know, and I freak out and wake her up. And it was a it was a tumultuous, tumultuous yeah. relationship, to say the least. I, I but, get yeah, it. And I, I, and I know there's no way to really know. I just I was just curious. OK, yeah. so now you got the studio all by yourself, not really equipped to run a studio and do drugs at the same time. So and you got yeah. arrested. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I got arrested. And then um, maybe a month later, Gordon flew, flew, flew. Um, where did he, fly? he went to, I think he went to Berlin or something and was like, yo, I'll be back. And we just sort of never came back. Um, and uh, I mean, it was, it wasn't just that. He also, he's a busy guy. I mean, he gets work all the time, all over the world. He's, you know, I mean, the strokes are like the Beatles in some countries, especially Latin American countries. So like Gordon can go, um to argentina because his picture was taken on the first strokes album they like used his they you know they did a band photo with him in it he can go there and like a lot of people recognize him and so um he gets a lot of work in places like that so it's really awesome so um kind of a combination of me acting up and you know just landing really good jobs um you know separated us and so Um, I got depressed and I started drinking even more. And then my son's mother and I split up and um, got even more depressed. So uh, the clothing store was actually legally mine. Um, And I decided, you know, I didn't want to do it anymore. And so did she. So I sold it. And I think I made like, I think I profited $30,000. And within like less than a year, I popped like all that money and turned it into morphine and (laughs) other stuff, you know, cocaine and just it was gone. So, and how old were you then, Josh? I was 22. Okay. Yeah. 22. So, uh, yeah, I'll never forget how quickly the the money went. Like I always used to think to myself, I don't see how, you know, this person or that person lost all their money to drugs, but I mean, it, it goes really quick and it's not just the drugs. It's the erratic, crazy decision-making that you also get into when you're, under the influence and the, the things you do with your money. So I think that had a lot to do with it too. Um, I was also really depressed about losing my, you know, partner at the time. So I was taking, you know, multiple women out on dates, trying to fill that void and spending a lot of money on dinners and all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, so what happened then? You spent a little time in jail, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've actually kept yeah, into prison. Um, so 
Uh, basically, I went silent for a few years and just was in a weird place where I didn't really know what to do with myself. Well, uh, my son's mother gets arrested and is basically told by the police because her charges at the time were very serious that she was no longer to be alone with him or, you know, have custody of him or any children, essentially. So he got put into my care and custody full time. And I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was so, I don't know, like serious about being a good father um, and being present in his life that, yeah, I just kind of stopped everything completely, even, you know. The, the music thing was like, I got to be serious about having a normal job and so on and so forth and what have you. But how old was he, he at uh, the time? He was, I guess he was about two or three. Okay. Yeah. He was young. He's, he's been with me up until recently, pretty much his whole life. Um, okay. And now he's with my mom, but um, yeah, it's just sort of a temporary thing. Um, uh, so we, um, yeah, it was him and I. My mom was helping me at that time, too, though. She'd help me watch him and, and stuff. And, um, yeah, I just kind of was in a place where I didn't really know what I was going to do or what kind of career I was going to pursue. But I can remember I was in two relationships, like, sort of from the age of him at the age of two to the age of, I guess, eight or nine, two different relationships. And between the first one I was in to the second one, they were both pretty serious and intense relationships, but between the first one to the second one, I just, I couldn't stand not doing music and I couldn't stand not partying. So yeah, again, it like, it, it, I went, you know, cold for a while, cold turkey, not doing anything. And then just, I, I sort of slowly started creeping back into certain things and uh, old patterns and behaviors. And then, from the first relationship to the second, I was, you know, partying and doing drugs again. And um, the girl that I was with at the time, the, the second girlfriend, she was from Mexico and had never really, she was, she came from a wealthy, you know, but conservative family. So she was kind of sheltered. She'd never been, she had never done drugs or, or, you know, hard drugs or drank or anything like that. Um, so um, she tried cocaine for the first time with me and, um, I thought she had done it. I just, I assumed that, you know, <laughs> it was something she had done and, um, she hadn't, but yeah, she liked it quite a bit. And so, um, she, you know, it, it, she didn't become an addict or anything, but she, you know, definitely didn't mind for quite a while when I would do it, um, until she started to recognize that I had a problem. And in fact, she was one of the first people to tell me that, you know, I should probably, consider how I was acting because I was exhibiting a lot of patterns and behaviors of an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, you know, for years, I'm like, no, 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 I've, there's no way. Like I've stopped plenty of times and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine and I'll stop again. And when the time's right, I'll quit forever. And, you know, so, um, I didn't even realize at the time that an alcoholic or an addict isn't somebody that necessarily does something every day. It's more how they react to it and, you know, whether or not they can stop when they start so and yeah i embody the classic stereotypes of an alcoholic and addict. once i start i just cannot stop until i'm forced to you are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us go to our facebook page by the same name or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or 
call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So was your mother pretty much taking care of your son during this period of time? Um, no, I was still managing to keep it together. Um, so I would drink at night when he'd go to sleep. Um, and then I would space out my, my drug use and sort of keep it at a minimum so that, you know, I felt like I was still, still being a good father. Um, the, the thing about the girl from Mexico was she was also a big music fan. And I got really, really serious about, she got her degree in finance and was working for this big financial, um, you know, fortune 500 company. Uh, but she basically quit that job to help me to help support my music career and to get into the music business herself. So, um, that was really when my personal success, success I started to attain like my own personal success with music. Um, however, uh, that's like when my addiction really, really took off and, and hit its peak, got to be the worst. Um, in 2016, I got, like locked up for the first time and yeah it was that was a big eye-opening you know game changer for me because um it changed my personality a lot it changed how I, I looked at people and things a lot um I definitely became more bitter um I became more I became less tolerant of a lot of things and that's not necessarily a good thing um so when I got out, uh, having all that negative energy bottled up inside and kind of feeling like it wasn't my fault and, you know, just sort of denying any accountability. Um, yeah, I got out and went right back to drinking and doing drugs. However, I also had this incredible determination to make something of myself with my music. Like I was, okay, I, I just, you know, lost so much time in my life. And now you know, I don't have, but a few years left, I have to do this and I have to go out at full force. Um, so yeah, like I get out and uh, everything was going really, really well. And I got a record deal and now I'm working with people that I like listened to when I was younger that I, you know, are like my heroes and um, everything was going pretty reasonably well. However, a lot of those people were also using drugs and um, were so socially, you know, accepting of it. And um, yeah. So I figured, okay, well, they're doing it and they're successful and they're you know, selling millions of records of views on YouTube. Like, so can I. Um, and yeah, I went from living in like a $2,000 a month uh, condo to, uh, uh, and having like two cars and all this, uh, you know, equipment and gear and have my son, most importantly, my son and, and a good, you know, supportive uh, system around me that, you know, I could speak to, to, just living out of hotels and doing pretty much, you know, doing all manner of criminal things to, to get my hands on drugs. And, um, 
you know, it was, it was a, it was a, like, I, I'll never forget. I was in this hotel one time a couple of years ago in Austin, Texas with another friend. And um, we were, I was buying an ounce of heroin from the sky and the guy that was with me was listening. And one of my songs was on the radio in the hotel. And he goes, isn't this you? And I looked up, <laughs> I didn't even know what to do. I was so overwhelmed. I started crying. I was like, yeah. And the guy, the guy, the guy who was doing the transaction goes from musician to drug, uh, drug, you know, peddler, whatever he, he called me. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I got what I deserved because I didn't lose anything. You know, I gave it away. I gave it away happily without like any remorse, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, so did that like end your music career? I mean, did it just, you know, it, it, the label basically contacted me and said, look, we're suspending your contract to get yourself well. Okay. And of course, at the time, I wasn't having it. I was like, I don't need to get myself well. I'm fine. You know, and that I was in 2020? It was 2019. Yeah. 2019? Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm sure that at this point, if I contacted them, they'd have to kind of, there'd, be, there'd have to be some dialogue for quite yeah. a, an extended period of time before they consider it. Because I got to be good friends with the owner of the label, but I just, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do and focus my energy on um, with regard to music. And, but, you know, ever since I got into, I, I actually am in the program, uh, you know, and it, it's, it's changed my life so much. And it's, it's fascinating because I, I watch all these things now, these psychologists and, and psychiatrists, they talk about how, you know, like, like, one in particular that struck me was this guy said that for years as a psychiatrist and a psychologist, he didn't support AA or NA because there was no science that backed it up. There was nothing that, that, you know, and then he conducted a study with like 200 people and found that not only was it the, like the most effective thing um, it's been, it has the highest rate of success um, uh, or one of the highest rates of success with regard to like, every other sort of program that people try to do to, to quit. And he was like, yeah, like I, I stand corrected. I still don't know how it works. Nobody does. It's like, a there's no scientific evidence. That well, yeah. Don't get me started. I mean, typically psychiatrists and psychologists don't, don't really put a lot of credence into God or religion or yeah. this man as a spiritual being. So we won't even go there, but before you go <laughs> too much into your rehab, what was your point of no return? What was the point at which you said, okay, I really have to get my life together? Because you'd kind of sort of been skating along. You knew you could kind of quit when you wanted to quit, but then you'd come back to it. So what was the point where you finally said, I got to stop? So, um, yeah, the music was gone, and I, I realized I had given it away. Um, that was one of the first um, things that was like, man uh, – the girl from Mexico left and she took pretty much everything that belonged to her and everything that we had bought together, which I couldn't blame her. Um, like I said, I was mute. I was living in and out of hotels. I got locked up again. This time I spent quite a significant amount of time um, away. Um, and then when I got out, I went right back at it and just, um, you know, it's, it's funny because Oh, there were so many things. I have so many crazy stories, but I, uh, in August, this uh, past year, 2021, my brother died of a fentanyl overdose. 
And I'll never forget my, I hadn't seen my ex, my son's mother in almost 10 years. And I'm in this really crappy abandoned uh, apartment uh, selling somebody drugs and, you know, all manner of other illegal things. And my ex walks in and I'm like, what the F are you doing here? And she's like, uh, I've got bad news. And I'm like, what? And she's like, your brother died. And I'm like, I just go get the, you know, I can swear, right? I can swear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Sorry. I literally, yeah. my exact words were get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I said, what do you really want? And she goes, I'm not kidding. And I said, what? And she goes, they think it's an overdose. So immediately I started crying and I, you know, broke down everybody. There was a like, okay. I was like, no. And, and she goes, is there anything I can do? And I go, yes, there is. I go, you can get the fuck out of here. And don't you ever come back. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to hear you again. Don't ever think it's appropriate to tell me about my relatives dying. I don't care about you. I, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Like for me, you're already gone and dead. And I really, really, really find it so completely depressing and disappointing that it's you that told me that he died. Um, so she was trying to sort of argue with me and wanted to stay and be supportive. So <laughs> I actually, this isn't funny, but I pulled the gun out. I was like, if you don't get out, I'm going to shoot you in the head and bury you in the front yard. And that'll be how you die. So that's how kind of, you know, crazy I had gotten. Uh, now, of course, I was upset and I wouldn't have really done that. But um, so for the next two weeks, um, you know, late August into September, I just went nuts. I did anything and everything you can imagine um, and had almost no remorse uh for it because in my mind like i you know the like one of my closest my 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 closest friend growing up you know was was dead and died and died from the same thing that was killing me and you know the last time i spoke to my brother it was really terrible we had a fight and you know it was, those were the last moments i shared with him was a, literally a, almost a fist fight um the only reason why we didn't end up fist fighting was because the the time before that, we'd gotten into a fist fight and he won. So I, th this time I pulled out some brass knuckles to scare him. And so he sort of stepped back. But I mean, I was trying to intimidate him and, and make him feel bad. And um, The argument was over who's a better addict. You know, he was oh. yelling. He was like, he was like uh, you know, you had a job and a career in music and you got all these things. And now look at you, you're a loser and you sleep on my couch. And, you know. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm having fun doing it. And I was like, what about you? You're miserable at your job. And just because you have an apartment, it's a shithole and your car barely starts. And, you know, at least I have fun and I do what I want. And so there was that. And it was just like, yeah, not a good way to end things. Um, that that guilt um, really, really just, you know, it, it was poisoning me. So I went crazy, like I said, and finally um, got to um, this place where I, I just... I looked at my life this one day. It was, uh, it was September 31st, uh, 2021. I was, um, I borrowed a friend's car who was in jail. Do you want me to tell this part or should I? I want you to tell it, but I want you to know that September only has 30 days. Oh, was it the 30th then? Okay, yeah. I just know that the next day was the 1st of October. Understood. <laughs> it does It does have 30 days, right. But it was definitely the 30th then because October 1st is my sobriety day. But, um... Yeah, I was a friend of mine had gone to jail and was like, hey, you can go to my house and borrow my car for a couple of days. Well, I, I went and got it and I've like just filled it to the brim with like all kinds of bad things, uh, stolen things, uh, drugs, you know, anything and everything. And was was just going completely nuts. Like I was literally having a, a nervous breakdown and uh, 
about to just, you know, self-implode and it spiraled out of control. And um, so I pulled up to this, um, this house. I just dropped off another friend to at the methadone clinic and I pulled up to this house and I remember thinking like, I'm just, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Like my family won't speak to me. Uh, my brother's dead and I didn't get to go to the funeral because if I went high, that would be inappropriate. And if I showed up dope sick, that would be inappropriate. So I couldn't even, and I didn't want to see him in a coffin anyway. It's, you know, I'm not really good with funerals. So it was really, I couldn't say goodbye to him. My last words to him were, um, you know, fuck you. Um, I hope you die miserable or something like that. It was really terrible. It was just, you know, my son, who's never done anything wrong to me, you know, has always been really, um, you know, he's been, he's been a good, he's been good to me always, no matter what. Um, I, you know, I was hurting him and it just, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I had a gun and I was going to, uh, oh, another thing, uh, a friend of mine who was supposed to be a good friend, who was also a heroin addict, um, stabbed me six times, um, to try to steal money. I had, I had. I had basically stolen $3,000 and he wanted it for drugs. So oh yeah. God. Yeah. He stabbed me six times. There's wow. scar right there. Oh my God. My hand. Yeah. All for money for drugs. Yeah. Yep. I remember thinking, okay, so like my, one of my good friends, I thought was a good friend stabbed me. My brother's dead. Uh, you know, my son, who's just the sweetest person. I can't, you know, continue to hurt. And every time I see him, he's always so happy to see me. He doesn't, see this person who's hurting him and destroying his life he just sees you know so uh yeah i had the gun and i was i was gonna shoot myself but i was not gonna die sober so did one last hit of heroin and i did some meth and uh it was a, a high point 380 and uh, if you know anything about guns high points are extremely crappy guns they are very unpredictable they get jammed a lot they just they're terrible so I pick up the gun and it goes off and whizzes right past my ear. And I actually have like a scar on my ear now. It's like where it just kind of grazed my ear. Um, and I remember thinking, holy shit, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I changed my mind. But from the adrenaline to the high to everything else and being overwhelmed, I just, right after that, I passed out. And I woke up with cops knocking on the window. And I'm like, oh, no, not again. You know, this is probably the 20th time I've been arrested in the last you know, who knows how many years I'm now on probation because I signed for probation a few years ago for burglary and robbery. And, uh, you know, and the only reason why I got probation was because of COVID and like I was, yeah. So the cops are knocking at the door and they pull me out and they put me in cuffs immediately. And they're like, what were you doing? And I just didn't say anything else. Like, man, just take me to jail. I don't, you know, he was like, well, what's your name? So I tell him, and he looks me up. He's like, wow. He's like, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're most definitely going back and probably going to stay there for a while now. Um, and he's like, what, like, before I take you, what were you doing? And I go, I was going to kill myself. And he goes, why? And I go, because I'm a, I'm a junkie and I'm alone and I don't have anybody. And my brother just died. And I feel like I don't have much to live for. I don't want to be alive anymore. I'm just done. I'm over everything. But I can't do that now. So if you could just take me to jail so I can sleep. And, you know, wake up and hang myself there. That'd be cool. <laughs> and uh, he was like, he just kind of looked at me and 
I'll never forget. He had this look like it was, it was very, not sincere, but just, it was an intense look. Like, like thinking back now, I feel like he felt something. He knew that I was being genuine with my answers. And I think he could really feel the pain I was in. Now, the fact that he had mercy was a, really a God thing because I, you know, I still don't feel I deserved grace or mercy, but he goes, um, is there anybody I can call to verify this information? Do you want to call and verify that I just tried to shoot myself in the head? <laughs> because, <laughs> no, I just want to know if I can call someone in to, to ask about your brother and see about your mental state. And you know, I mean, you can call my mom, but she's probably so tired of hearing from the police now that she'll probably hang up on you. And it's usually what she does now when police call. <laughs> and uh, so he calls her and he, he comes back. And um, he doesn't say anything. He just puts me in the back of the car. So I'm thinking, I'm just, you know, going to jail, uh, back to prison. And that would be that. But then all of a sudden, some like this weird feeling comes over me. And I just, my whole life sort of like, it didn't flash in front of my eyes, but my whole life came to mind. And I remember thinking, that's just not enough. Like, that can't be it. Um, I was almost there and that was it. Like, and then I got, you know, went to jail for, and that, that's my life for however long. Like, it, it would have definitely been a long time had he taken me in and charged me. Right. Um, and I just, all of a sudden, this, this feeling came over me, and I thought, I can't do this. And, and I started praying, which is weird because I hadn't prayed in, like, 10 years. And I just said, okay, look, I know this is wrong and stupid, and it's probably not going to work. But if you somehow, by some divine miracle, get me out of this, I swear I will get myself right. I'll change I'll get clean. I'll make it. I'll make a real, true, honest effort, and I will do the right thing. I'll be open and honest about everything, and I'll make sure that, like, you know. And I'm like trying to barter and, and <laughs> uh, make a deal with God, and and all of a sudden, um, we pull up to this building, and I'm like, "Where are we?" And he goes, "We're at the South uh, Vista Hospital." And I'm like, "Why are we here?" And he goes, "We got to get a psyche valve because you tried to kill yourself." And I go, oh, "Well, so when do I go to jail?" Because I'm not taking you to jail. Uh, I don't think you need jail. I think you need help. He goes, "So." I recommend you get it. He goes, because um, you have family that really love and care about you and are worried about you. And um, he was like, but let me tell you something too. If I ever see you out here again like this, I'll take you in and I'll charge you with every single, I'll charge you for jaywalking and you know, every little charge that you, that I can, I will make sure you spend the rest of your life in prison. It, you know, if you screw me over on this. So I didn't know what to do. Uh, this was kind of a rare occurrence. Um, well, at, at this point in time, it was, I like just broke down in front of this grown man, police officer and started crying. And, um, <laughs> I'll never forget. I didn't say thank you. I just said, I'm sorry. And, uh, he was like, don't tell me you're sorry. You know, tell your mom. So I went in and I detoxed for three days and yeah, I called my mom and I hadn't spoken to her in like two years practically and so you know we we talked about my brother and um everything and that was that was yeah that was that was kind of how recovery really started um before i would quit things but i would do something else there was always something sort of like masking or uh, substituting you know this has been the only substitute i have now is you know the meetings and stuff so well, you have been clean and sober for six months. I counted it up in excess yeah. of six months. And that, 
I would imagine, you know, we've talked to people who've been clean and sober for like 30 years. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know that they would tell me that it gets easier, but I would imagine that it probably gets somewhat easier as the years go by. So the fact that you're six months, probably not the easiest six months that you've gone through, but you know what? You're clean and sober and you're now in a position to be, you know, a great dad to your son and a great son to your mom. So, I mean, well done. And a you. Good Sorry? I actually... Uh, a good husband too. I actually, the, the funny thing about this is uh, through all of this, um, the, the one thing I did not pay attention to or listen to was, uh, you know, everybody was like, be celibate for a while, maybe six months <laughs> to a year. And I was like, I am not doing that. <laughs> and uh, I, but I met this girl who's or this woman. She's incredible. I, I, you know, we've, uh, we've been together since November 23rd. And we, we started dating officially um i guess in december but we met november 23rd for our first date and we've been inseparable ever since and so uh, yeah two weeks ago i asked her to marry me which is totally congratulations the thing of it is though is uh her family and you know just everything that i have going on right now i think is a result of just you know really putting good energy into things and wanting to you know karma's not so spiritual or so like metaphysical as people think it's it's like if you want to look at it from a scientific or a, a philosophical like a, um, a social philosophical um, point of view it's like if you're in a good mood or if you put out good you know energy if you're nice to people or if you try if you just try your hardest to be you know, a good person with integrity, I think it resonates with people and they see that and they want to do good things for you. So, you know, my biggest thing is, I mean, I'm still very flawed. I'm still kind of an asshole from time to time. You're not um, perfect. Oh my God. Yeah. How did you get on this podcast? We only yeah. put perfect people on the podcast. There Just kidding, Josh. <laughs> but I mean, I think that the biggest thing, um, the 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 biggest the secret to sobriety for me has been this um i have been a heroin addict for years so for anybody to uh trust me with any decision let alone myself to make any decision would be so irresponsible because how can you trust a heroin addict to do anything what i what i did was i i realized i will never be able to quit because i'm a heroin addict i can't really do anything um because of that however um you know, I surrendered myself to something greater than myself and just said, okay, I will let you take the wheel now and, and whatever it is, it, you know, that is your will, I will do. If, if I feel it in my heart, that's what I do. And, and the biggest thing that's come with that is just honesty. I think if you're honest with people about everything, even if it's a little bit hurtful, not, not, not like, not mean, but even if it hurts their feelings, I think that ultimately if you can get you know, if you can keep honesty and, and integrity, um, people will want to do good things for you. So I met, I met this girl and I was just, you know, since the, our first date, I said, listen, you know, she ordered wine with dinner. I said, I can't drink. And she goes, oh, why not? And I go, well, because I'm either really good at it or I'm really bad at it. I haven't figured <laughs> that out yet. <laughs> so we, I proceeded to tell her just everything. I kind of, it was the craziest thing. I, I hadn't been intimate or even romantic with anybody in such a, you know, long time or for me, a long time, um, like in a, in a very 
clean and innocent way that is, you know, where I was trying to just get to know somebody. I just like vented to her for like two hours about what I had been through over the last couple of years. And she was pretty shocked and amazed, but you know, she, I think the honesty kind of resonated with her because she's still here. And yeah, she, uh, she happily <laughs> agreed to marry me. So she's at her. Yeah. She might be crazy though, too. You never... <laughs> I don't think so. Um, you know, no, I think we have to believe that people can change and that people can get better. And I think that you're a perfect example of that. And yeah. And obviously she can see that. So, um, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Um, but you know, just to live for like basically six years in such a dark place, you know, not only spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, um, and then six months, just everything's completely like, I've never been so sure about loving someone in my entire life. I know without any doubts in my mind that not only do I love her, but I want to spend my life with her. Um, you know, that's, and that's, you know, just being honest with myself. I think that's important. Um, I, think and, I was going to say that because you were talking about being honest with other people, but I think initially it starts with yourself and being honest with yourself. And you did that, you know, yeah. and you confronted that and you came through that. And I think, I think that that's huge and that's kind of like the basis. And then you can move from there and start being honest with other people. I get that. Yeah. I understand that. Well, the other thing is that her parents are really like, they're, they're very supportive of our relationship. They're supportive of me. They help me with so much. They're like, they're incredible people. Um, I can't, I can't always get a read on them, which kind of freaks me out because I, I read everybody pretty well. Uh, you know, being sort of a narcissist and a, a, a bit of a, a, a manipulative person um, before I, I like, uh, you know, that's one of the first things I do. I try to size people up. But I think the reason why I can't, you know, they just sort of, they do what they feel is good. And I think the main difference between people from before is that people from before always had an agenda and a motive. And they just kind of seek out what what is good and what is going to work for yep. them and for the situation. You know, and that's why it's, I, I feel incredibly, uh, you know, grateful to, to, you know, be a part of her life and their life because yeah, that's just one of those things that's been really rewarding. Um, you know, and I get to be in my son's life. I get to be in my mom's life. Um, you know, people trust me now with, with money, you know, in their car and their, it's, and, you know, and, and it was, it was so simple. You know, I, I wish I could have started this a long time ago because it, yeah, it's only been six months. I went through like, you know, year, almost a decade of hell just for, you know, for nothing, you know, it was, and it, I mean, nothing is for nothing, but it was, I just, I think if people, it's, it's, it's such a, a driving force in my life and it's so positive. I feel like even people that aren't addicts or alcoholics can apply these principles to their life because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing that, that really helps give you clarity and um, helps you practice patience and tolerance and kindness and understanding. And it's just, you know, the, the, the big um, part of it too, that really gets, gets me feeling good is the service work, you know, be of service to others, step outside yep. of yourself, yep. you know, and that's I think huge. that's great. Yeah. That's I focused huge. on myself for years mm -hmm. 
and it never did me any good. Right. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I, yeah. I just, I applaud you for being clean and sober. I really want to thank you for sharing your story today. It's honest. It's real. I think that it will resonate with people who either are themselves going through a similar situation or have a loved one with a similar situation. So personally, I want to thank you, Josh, for taking the time to talk to us today and being willing to share everything. And congratulations on getting married. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today and watching today. Um, Josh's story, I think, is so real. It is so much like so many young people and even older people who are, become addicted and eventually become clean and sober. He's new in his sobriety, but he's doing well and his life is on an upturn. And if you or someone you know is addicted, you know, it can happen for you too. You just, the first step is the very hardest. And that is to, first of all, realize that you need help and then reach out for it. So it's our hope that you do that. We'll be back again next week with an interview. And thank you once again for listening and watching. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.